Welcome to another episode of the Yale Women's Leadership Initiatives podcast series, Women of Yale, a series dedicated toward telling the stories of past and current women students, their experiences of struggle, of identity, and of empowerment on campus and beyond. My name is Julia, the Communications Director of WLI. WLI recently released a book titled Remembering 50, in honor of 50 years of co-education at Yale College. If you are not yet familiar with the book, we invite you to listen to our second episode, titled Remembering 50, in which we speak about the book and how it came to be. The book itself is an anthology featuring the voices and stories of alumni of all gender identities, backgrounds, and career paths. In the coming weeks, we will invite some Remembering 50 contributors to read and reflect on excerpts of their essay and their experiences on campus. Today, we feature a conversation between Michaela Markles, a member of the WLI Advisory Board, and Pam Rowlings, one of our Remembering 50 contributors. Today, I'm so happy to be hosting Pamela Rowlings, who is going to read us her contribution to Remembering 50, um, and then we'll introduce herself briefly and answer some of the questions that I've prepared um, for her today. Thank you. Uh, okay, here goes. Uh, ready or Not by Pam Rowlings, class of 1976. Ready or not, here we come. I arrived at Yale bright-eyed and full of enthusiasm in the fall of 1972. I was ready for the challenge of being one of the first women at Yale, which went co-ed just three years before. I felt extremely lucky to be accepted. I heard somewhere that the ratio of women to men was one in eight, so it felt like I had won a prize and was getting in on the ground floor. Yale had a great reputation and seemed the most egalitarian of my options. Princeton was too elitist with the exclusive eating clubs, and Radcliffe women seemed separate but not equal to Harvard men. At the time, how could I have known that Yale was not ready for women or eager to change? Women were accepted in name only. We were thrown into the maze and expected to figure our way out. It was hard and sometimes terrible, even if nothing especially terrible happened to most of us. I now know from Ann Gardner Perkins' eye-opening book, Yale Needs Women, that I was one of 230 women and 1,025 men starting as freshmen in the class of 1976. Yale slowly increased the number of women admitted after 1972 to a more equitable level only after much debate and agonizing. The women entering in the fall of 1972 were an incredibly diverse group of smart girls from everywhere. Unfortunately, I never met most of them because Yale spread us across the residential colleges as was done for the men. There were no organized opportunities for meeting and no female role models or mentors. We were left to deal with it in our own way. I had no idea what to expect and was excited at the prospect of more boys than girls coming from an all-girls school. I gave no thought to appearances, however, coming from an all-girls school, and am horrified at the ratty clothes I wore and photos from the day. I showed up with just a couple of suitcases, dropped off by my sister, and had lunch at Broadway Pizza before she left. It was too far from Savannah, Georgia for my parents to come. 
Welcoming me on that first day, standing in the registration line at Connecticut Hall, was Jeff from Cleveland, the first person I met who seemed friendly. Everyone I met seemed to know a lot more than me. While most fresh women were housed in Vanderbilt, we Trumbull women were assigned to Wright Hall, guinea pigs for co-ed living in the first co-ed entryway at Yale. Trumbull upperclassmen living on the first floor were supposed to keep us safe somehow. There were no locks on the doors or gates. My two roommates and I had a nice suite with two bedrooms, a common room, and windows overlooking the Elm Street entrance to the old campus. Joanna arrived first and claimed the single bedroom, leaving Trish and me to share the bunk bed in the other bedroom. The first of many shocks. Bunk beds, as in summer camp? Our large common room was distressingly empty. We bought a rug, found some old furniture, and made do. By sophomore year, the trumbled triples turned into quads. Overcrowding became a way of life at Yale, mostly blamed on the admission of women, since tradition demanded no less than a thousand Yale men. Everybody complained and was worse off. I lasted one semester in Trumbull before moving off campus. I transferred to Pearson my senior year and finally got a room of my own at Yale. The two new residential colleges that people started talking about back then would take more than 40 years to materialize. At some point, I developed a dark downward scowl that caused male passersby to tell me to smile. Without understanding why, I found myself binge eating and purging, an unnamed eating disorder back then. I got skin infections needing antibiotics, probably from dirty clothes or sheets. My mother was horrified when she finally came to visit. I had dreams where I shrank and sometimes woke up feeling paralyzed. Academically, I was doing fine with straight A's, but clearly something was wrong. I sought counseling at DUH, Yale's Department of University Health, and had one appointment with a Freud pretender who just listened and offered no advice. I never went back. I enjoyed the attention from the male students at first. The prospects for finding a boyfriend were good, although I wasn't looking for a boyfriend. I was looking for my place in this strange new world. Guys were definitely looking for girlfriends and checking us out. Jeff invited me to my first party in the Hill House Annex for Calhoun freshmen. I was the only girl there and we drank a disgustingly sweet liqueur called Ouzo. I went to many other parties, often the only girl. I had a secret admirer who never revealed himself. I hung out with the boys from Saybrook in the next entryway and the boys from Trumbull and Durfee Hall across the way who smoked dope and listened to Monty Python and Firesign Theater. I tried acting like one of the boys, but was not exactly feeling it. I discovered soon enough the happy hour sponsored by Trumbull College on Friday afternoons. I became acquainted with Harvey Wallbanger and other fancy cocktails, served extra strong. Not as scary as dope, which was illegal, and the drinking age was 18, so no problem, right? My Russian teachers treated us to caviar and vodka shots in the dining hall. Alcohol was just what I needed to deal with the discomfort of Yale. I didn't like straight vodka any more than Uzo, but that didn't stop me from developing a daily drinking habit by senior year. Booze became my medicine and key lubricant for liaisons with Yale men. Fortunately, 
birth control was freely available at DUH and effective, unlike the psychotherapy. I met the man who eventually became my husband's senior year. He brought Beck's beer to our first date, a showing of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Lousy movie, but beer was my drink of choice. By then, I was a regular at Rudy's, a favorite hangout for athletes. I was captain of the women's basketball team, which I helped start freshman year. Yale was not about to offer sports for women until we proved we were serious, so we had to find the players ourselves. I may have been the first female to participate in the Tang Cup beer chugging competition. I barely remember my senior experience in one of the few co-ed senior societies. There are no photos. I passed out in the ladies' room during the Yale-Princeton football game and came to in the hospital, where they let me sober up and walk back to campus. The problem was, I kept drinking when others stopped. Feeling unsupported as a woman at Yale had a lot to do with my discomfort. The Black and Hispanic Latino students had organizations and mostly socialized together. While the one in eight ratio stuck in my mind, it was actually closer to one in four by the time I arrived, at least for undergraduates. But the Yale community was much larger than the undergraduate population. Women were even scarcer in the graduate programs and almost non-existent in the teaching ranks. I never had a woman professor, and the first time I spoke to one was when I inquired about graduate school, and the woman leading the department told me that I didn't appear serious enough about studying Russian. There was no career counseling, and law school was a default option. I never even considered applying to Yale Law School. I was done with New Haven. I turned down Harvard again, thinking Columbia would be more progressive. After a depressing first year of law school at Columbia, which was much worse than expected and no fun after Yale, I transferred to University of Virginia, trailing my future husband. It took many more years with a legal career, marriage, and children intervening before I finally addressed my problem with alcohol. Luckily, once I made the decision, I was able to stop with the support of other sober people, mostly women. I learned that I was not alone and that one in eight people were fellow sufferers, according to a 2017 study in JAMA Psychiatry. I'm so glad the number is not higher. I'm also glad that the number of women is a lot more than one in eight at Yale now, closer to 50-50. This is so much better than when I was a bright-eyed, impressionable 18-year-old trying to find my way. Thank you so much for reading that. And before we get into the Q&A, um, could you please briefly introduce yourself? Sure. Well, I'm Pam Rawlings. I'm a native of Savannah, Georgia, where I grew up with five siblings. And uh, I did go away to boarding school to Concord Academy in 10th grade, uh, and then on to Yale, class of 76. Um, majored in Russian studies. Uh, which was really just uh, uh, a fancy way of dressing up an English major, <laughs> which was my true love. And uh, then ended up going to law school uh, one year at Columbia and then to the University of Virginia, where my future husband was also in law school. And both of us moved to Pittsburgh for our legal career. And I've been a Pittsburgh uh, resident since 79. And it's a uh, great city to raise a family, two sons. Uh, I started in a private law firm, then went to a, a big corporate bank, 
Uh, and I finished my legal career after a, a break in the middle uh, with a nonprofit parks conservancy for the city of Pittsburgh. So I got to see three different types of legal practice, which was very interesting. And uh, my oldest son is uh, a graduate of Yale and had a wonderful experience there graduating in 2011. So that was very gratifying. And I, I've been very active with Yale alumni events. Uh, I really enjoyed my connections to Yale even more since graduating. <laughs> Attending reunions was the start of it. And then I went to a trip to Turkey with Yale Gale, uh, you know, and I've done day of service and other things like that. And interviewing uh, applicants has been really fun. Mm -hmm. uh, my husband and I spent five years in Dubai. He spent 10 years. I, I lasted five years. And we interviewed applicants there. It was really fun. And some of them actually got in, which was great. So that is so cool. So I'm going to start off um, with how do you think that the male students and teachers saw you and the other um, Yale women, especially since it had only been about um, a decade or so since women were allowed to start at Yale? The freshman counselor was in the first graduating class of, of women who had started as freshmen. Oh. So it was 68 when women started coming. The male students were bewildered by us. Mm. <laughs> you know, they probably realized that these women were pretty darn smart and interesting, but, you know, they were not the women they were used to having met in high school and, and so forth in their, mm. wherever they came from. So I think we were a curiosity to them more than anything. And there were so few of us and we were so scattered that, you know, we attracted lots of attention. Now, in terms of the professors, you know, Yale was just not prepared to really deal with women. Um, mm -hmm. So there were no programs, there were no organizations, um, you know, and all of that has changed, of course. But um, I think co-education was inevitable there. Uh, it was going to happen. They just kind of handled it very badly in the beginning. So, mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's taken a long time. You know, the, the, the sad thing is I met so few of the women in my class um, and I'm still meeting people I never met, uh, you know, through things like this. And, you know, I mean, the other, there are a couple of other 76 women who, who wrote pieces and I didn't know them at all. Uh, you know, it's just horrifying. And the class day speaker last year was a class of 76 woman, Jean Bennett, very accomplished uh, research, uh, you know, a scientist who is curing blindness in dogs and, mm -hmm. uh, you know, with gene therapy. And, you know, I just met her at the last reunion. But Yale's a lifelong experience. And I really uh, appreciated how much it's changed. And you know this program that you you uh, women are doing is fantastic. I mean, it's a wonderful opportunity for mm -hmm. undergraduates to do something very meaningful. Uh, mm -hmm. Which, by the way, I do regret playing basketball. Really? <laughs> no, um, I was on the first basketball team, but you know I gravitated to something where there were other women mm -hmm. okay, who were, had a similar interest, and it mm -hmm. was new. It was mm -hmm. the first team ever. But, you know, in terms of really spending my time while at Yale, was that the best way to spend it? Probably not. So but it was fun. It was fun. Well, that'll lead me into my next. I'm, I'm actually interested about the process of going about um, starting the women's basketball team at Yale. It wasn't a big deal. Um, you know, it wasn't a big process either. Um, basically, the women's tennis players 
who already had a team. There was no soccer team there at that time either. It was just women's tennis and field hockey had already started. And there's a good discussion of how that team started in the Yale Needs Women book. Um, uh, but the, there were a couple of women's tennis players who just decided we needed a basketball team. It wasn't my idea. <laughs> I wasn't planning to play basketball. But they found out somehow that I, I guess one of them knew I played basketball in high school and I was good. Um, so, you know, we just decided, okay. And so we started as a club sport freshman year. We put up recruiting posters in the old campus. And, uh, you know, uh, that was it. It was very, you know, low key the first year. The second year was a little more serious. We got a better coach. We had three different coaches while I was there. Uh, and so we played, you know, a, you know, more or less regular scheduled in. By the time I graduated, by senior year, we actually did have some decent players. But, you know, in the beginning, we were not even a good high school team. But, you know, it got better. And, and you know, the team in the 70s was one of the better teams they ever had. Uh, you know, uh, the only time they won the Ivy League. Wow. Uh, they played and beat UConn twice, you know. Yes. So Wow, that is pretty competitive. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's very hard now to be a varsity athlete at a place like Yale. And I, mm -hmm. I do keep in touch with the basketball team. And, uh, you know, I mean, it is such a huge commitment. But, you know, unfortunately, most of the other uh, women who played basketball were not in my class. So it's very hard, you know, if they're not in your class, you don't see them at reunions. And, you know, it's hard to keep in touch. So mm -hmm. I haven't really had much of a connection to uh, the, the basketball team since graduation, as, mm -hmm. as much as I do to my class of 76. Mm -hmm. Since my husband was also in the class of 76, we really do have a lot of friends that we keep in touch with, yeah. including yeah. Jeff, <laughs> that is such who's a, my husband's know. roommate. I'm really interested to hear more about um, just what it was like to start in a male-dominated environment after going to an all-girls school. Well, I, I think I probably went a little boy crazy. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and I missed being in school with, with I, I always had many male friends growing up because uh, mm -hmm. I was athletic and, you know, um, and uh, so that was, that was one thing. Um, I don't know, coming from an all-girls school, I felt pretty confident about my academic abilities. I, I wasn't intimidated by the coursework or... Mm -hmm. You know, I was probably overconfident in mm -hmm. the sense that I didn't seek out help when I probably could have used it. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I don't think I ever talked to an academic advisor, which is pretty dumb, actually. Um, you know, I relied on my fellow classmates for most of the advice about what courses to take and uh, so forth. Um, so I, I was pretty confident. Um, and, you know, it was just a very strange environment since there were so few women. Um, so uh, I, I didn't, you know, I, I also obviously was not interested at all in looking nice. You know, I, I look at what kids take mm -hmm. to college now and, you know, the clothes and all of that. And, you know, I, I had two suitcases with, you know, worn out clothes and tennis shoes, you know, mm -hmm. and... Uh, so, I mean, I was not there to impress anybody mm -hmm. <laughs> with, my, with my appearance. Uh, and that was the era, too. I mean, the, the 70s, you know, was a grunge period and mm -hmm. nobody dressed up. I mean, there was no Yale prom. There was nothing fancy like that. 
Um, you never had to put on a skirt or a dress if you didn't want to. Mm -hmm. And uh, um, so, I mean, I did try to be more or less one of the guys mm -hmm. you know, when I look back on it. Because um, that's who I hung out with. Mm -hmm. I hung out with, with mostly guys. And, uh, um, you know, I tried to keep up with them, which was kind of a mistake sometimes. Um, mm -hmm. But, you know, they, I, I actually had zero issues with my male classmates. Um, you know, no, no issues at all. And uh, loved, loved them all. And, you know, it was, I was glad I went to Yale, by the way. I mean, I may have sounded like I, you know, maybe thought I made a mistake. But uh, I, I did think it, everybody treated everybody the same. You know, there mm -hmm. was no class system. I had no sense of, you know, people being, you know, socially higher up, you know, or mm -hmm. any kind of thing like that. Um, it was very egalitarian and, and the professors were very fair. You know, I don't think they treated women any differently. I really don't. But they certainly didn't give us any mm -hmm. <laughs> extra help. Mm -hmm. You know, if I had to describe Yale back then, it was definitely sink or swim. There was no extra support. Uh, if you needed help, you had to ask you know, that no one was going to reach out and ask how you were doing. Mm -hmm. And since I did very well in terms of my grades, my freshman counselor never talked to me, ever. Uh, you know, she focused on the people who were struggling mm -hmm. with grades for academics. And uh, so, you know, I, no one would have thought I had any issues, really. Did you notice any um, differences in culture in like all female environments versus all male environments? Well, maybe, maybe the men were being careful when women were around. I don't know. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I didn't really. I, I, like I said, I was very comfortable in a male environment mm -hmm. for whatever reason. I mean, you know, I actually have five sisters and a brother, you know, so I, I don't know why I was more comfortable in a, in a male environment. But, mm -hmm. uh, um, I, I, I didn't really, but, you know, I was very naive too. I came from the South. <laughs> uh, you know, this is southern girl very sheltered uh upbringing i mean boarding school was an eye-opener for me and you know people doing marijuana all that stuff that was all news to me okay mm -hmm. uh, i did not get into that at all so um you know i i was probably oblivious i didn't know what i didn't know you know i mean i wouldn't have even probably recognized that kind of thing and you know, even though I am a sensitive person, I'm very sensitive. Uh, I just didn't know to take offense at certain things back then. I mean, you know, things you take for granted now, um, you know, the ERA was just being promoted back then. And of course, it didn't even pass. Roe v. Wade was just a case in 1973. You know, those things, which you guys probably take for granted, more or less now, were just beginning, but I thought they were already there. You know, mm -hmm. I kind of assumed we had made it as women. So it was just opening the door. I didn't see any other issues. So, you know, at, at the beginning of the, you know, those changes, I think women were just elated to be let in the door. We just had no concept of the difficulties lying ahead or that, you know, there was a lot more work that needed to be done. And, and that's why when I read that book about Yale Needs Women, I had no idea of the struggles and what some of the very first women had gone through with Ruth Bader Ginsburg just dying. Mm -hmm. You know, you really have to look at someone like her and what it took a whole lot of years for her to accomplish. And the scary thing is it can be turned around quickly too. It can go backwards. 
I'm, I'm like really curious to hear a little bit more about kind of the struggles that you went through in terms of mental health during college that you wrote about. Yeah. Well, you know, that was an unrecognized mental health problem for mm-hmm. many years for mm-hmm. me. Um, I, I didn't really have a name for it. Um, and, uh, you know, there was really no support for that. It, you know, I mean, they did have counseling, um, but it was the time of Freudian psychology. And, you know, they just sit there and listen to you and let you talk. And there's nothing coming back. You know, peer support would have been much more helpful, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, just having a, a peer group uh, talking. And that's basically what I use now is peer group support. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, I didn't even go into the medical side of it, you know, uh, with medicine uh, until much, much later in my life when I, I did encounter a very serious depression after my mother died. And so that was the first time I actually sought medical help. And it helped. It helped. But, you know, it's not a fix. And, uh, you know, you really do have to look at, at your whole situation to deal with something like that. There, I can't really point to anything at Yale that caused it. Uh, mm-hmm. it, it, was, it was internal. It was anxiety. It was, you know, just feeling a lot of discomfort. Um, you know, obviously the drinking was a big issue uh, and started in college. Uh, and since the drinking age was 18 and Yale sponsored happy hours, I am quite sure they don't do that now because um, the drinking age is 21. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, obviously that was huge. But can I blame Yale for that? Um, I'm sure that happened in colleges everywhere. Mm-hmm. And all colleges are dealing with the binge drinking issue now. Mm-hmm. Uh, they all are, you know, and they all have programs. And kids still get sucked into it. They still get sucked into it. Mm-hmm. And I probably would have anyway. So, mm-hmm. you know, there's a family and genetic component to this too. Uh, I don't know. Um, you know, the loneliness of, of being a, a, a woman, you know, kind of on my own for a lot of things. Um, I think that contributed to it. So I think the fact that, you know, there are more women there, you know, more chances for connections, you know, often it's a lack of a connection, meaningful connection. You know, I think the fact that they do have meaningful uh, advisory support systems now, obviously that's very helpful. I mean, I remember writing my senior paper senior year. I stayed over, over Thanksgiving and uh, I was all by myself. You know, I had pizza for Thanksgiving and writing my senior paper. I never once spoke to my advisor, never once. Um, that's not a way to write a senior paper, okay? And I handed it in and, you know, I had had all A's all through college. I got a B plus on that paper. And the reason was I didn't cite enough secondary sources. That was the reason. And, uh, you know, um, I mean, that's just dumb, just dumb stuff. Uh, you know, and obviously that didn't affect anything, but it sticks in my mind as, I didn't learn what I should have learned in the, the four years at Yale about connecting with support systems and people and advisors. And, and so I, I really had no career counseling. I, I just defaulted to law school, which is what, you know, law schools were now open for women. So, you know, we all kind of got the same idea at the same time. We thought we were being so original, but mm. a lot of us went to law school and, uh, 
you know, the funny thing was at Columbia, I was there when Ruth Bader Ginsburg was there. I had no idea of her. I'd never heard of her. Wow. I had no idea she was even there, you know? So, I mean, well-kept secret, I guess. You know, she was very low-key. That's why mm-hmm. she was so successful um, at uh, getting things accomplished. So I sure would have ho- wished I had taken a course from her while I was there, but uh, unfortunately I didn't. Um, I mean, if you talked a little bit about like about binge drinking is still such a huge issue in college um, and loneliness, even with a 50-50 ratio, but just for people in general is a big issue for people in college. So I wonder um, what colleges can do to kind of have built in ways for people to feel supported um, if they are prone to this kind of thing. Well, let me speak as a parent now. Mm-hmm. Um, I wish that the deans and whoever in these colleges would reach out to parents when there's an issue mm-hmm. and they don't because of privacy. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that's, that's one thing. Um, there needs to be an early warning system or something when a kid is falling through the cracks or, um, you know, just, just anything that might be of, of interest. Like the time I ended up in the emergency room. I mean, my parents should have known about that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, at least they could then make sure the kid is getting some help. Um, mm-hmm. And you're right, though. Uh, all the support systems, all the peer networks, you know, uh, you know, a kid like me may never have even considered joining WLI. Mm-hmm. You know, that might have been the best thing possible for them. Um, but you know, it just never would have occurred to them because when they're that miserable, you know, they're not seeking out new opportunities, you know, Mm -hmm. they're just stuck. And, Mm uh, I don't know. I think the freshman counselors could probably do more Mm -hmm. and they're called freshmen now, but you know, they, there's a lot more that just could be done one-on-one that needs to be done, especially that first year. The systems are good, but that's all they are systems. They have to be used and you have to have the right people mm-hmm. in charge uh, who really have the right touch, who are sensitive. You know, the, the residential college system is a great system too. And mm-hmm. you know, I know people who really were supported through horrible struggles, mm-hmm. uh, but others did not seek them out, you know? And I think that quiet student who never talks is probably the one who's in the most trouble. And I mean, you talked about feeling very comfortable in male environments, but I'm wondering, like, just like advice for girls in, um, in male environments. And the culture issue certainly comes into play later mm-hmm. in big ways. <laughs> corporate environment. Okay. When you get in a law firm, when you get into a corporate boardroom, uh, even in the nonprofit world, um, you know, Later on, when you're in a room with 10 men and you're the only woman, mm-hmm. you know, that's, that's a big shock. And, uh, you know, I, I did pretty well in those environments because um, I wasn't afraid to speak up, okay? Mm-hmm. And I would interrupt men, <laughs> you know? A lot of women are just very reluctant uh, to do that. Uh, they're uh, reluctant to speak up. Uh, they're reluctant to take credit for their ideas. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think I was able to do that because no one viewed me as a threat, mm-hmm. you know, um, and I, I've always been a team player. Uh, you know, I always like to give credit to other people. Uh, I, I, I like to support others as well. I'm not just there to, to, sh- sh- you know, blow my own horn. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And I, you know, I might manage a group of lawyers at the bank I work for. And, uh, you know, I liked giving them work. So I didn't have to do it. Mm-hmm. I did not want to do all the work. So I liked finding people who could actually do the work well and giving them as much responsibility as possible and not micromanaging them and then giving them credit when it was done well. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think if you're a team player and you give credit where credit is due and you're not afraid to speak your mind, you know, you can shine in those environments and people will want to work with you. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, personality plays a lot of, a, it's a huge factor in, in, you know, job performance and, you know, promotions and all the rest of it. And, you know, I, I'm not, I don't play politics. In fact, I ignore office politics entirely in the rumor mill and, you know, all of that stuff. Um, and I will not tell on somebody, okay, unless, and, you know, there are situations where something needs to be done about somebody. And, you know, there are HR people you can talk to, you know, you don't need to cause a ruckus directly with anybody these mm-hmm. days. Um, but, you know, when I, when I first started, there were no rules on sexual harassment or any of things like that. So, you know, those things did happen. Mm-hmm. They did happen. And it was problematic how to deal with that. So, you know, fortunately, I was never, you know, I never had a problem with any of that. But I, I saw situations and it is horrible. It's horrible mm-hmm. when those things happen. And uh, there needs to be, you know, a very impartial, fair way of getting those issues addressed and not just swept under the rug. You know, I think actually one of the most important things, you know, when you get into your career is who you're working for, you know, Mm -hmm. who your boss is. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I mean, that is probably the most critical element to, you know, um, satisfaction, job satisfaction, I think, Uh, you know, and I left one of my jobs for that reason. I just did not like who I was working for. Um, you know, uh, if you have a very demanding, unpredictable uh, person who doesn't give you credit and, you know, um, is just being unreasonable, you know, mm-hmm. or making your life difficult, you know, um, that's probably not a job worth having. Uh, so I would look elsewhere and, you know, there's plenty of good people out there to work for. You know, I really enjoyed the change from corporate to nonprofit mm. and just having so much more flexibility. I hated, 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 hated having to be at work at eight o'clock commuting. Mm-hmm. Oh my God. Commuting. Um, you know, and I, I had small children through a lot of it and uh, you know, having to do the pickups and you know, that kind of thing and always being late, being stressed out um, the stress the stress was, was really awful. So mm-hmm. having a more flexible job schedule, you know, the pandemic has shown companies that they can do things in different ways than they thought they had to do them before. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, you don't need to travel as much. You, you know, you can do meetings this way without having to get in your car. And, uh, you know, it's been, it's been really great uh, to have job flexibility. Actually, I'm retired now, which is wonderful, too. (laughs) (laughs) But up until July, I was still working. I liked working part-time, too. So, I mean, part-time is not a bad option. So, Mm -hmm. um, you know, people say, oh, don't work part-time. You'll be working full-time and getting part-time pay. You hear that all the time. Mm -hmm. Well, only if you let that happen. 
only if you let that happen. My last job, I, I worked three days a week, and then I went down to two days a week. And that was just days for numbers of hours. And mm -hmm. uh, I just stopped working when I was ready. You know, I, I put in the time I needed to put in. And when I wasn't available, I just didn't do anything, you know. And people started to respect that. Mm -hmm. So I would communicate. Communication is really important. Um, you know, I can get back to you on Monday. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, don't let the job overwhelm your life, uh, you know, but manage it. What advice would you give to your younger self, uh, maybe like starting your Yale experience, but then also maybe a graduating Yale and starting your um, post undergrad life? Yeah, uh, that's a really good question. And I wish I had a good answer. <laughs> um, I'm not sure I would have done anything any differently, even mm -hmm. if I'd had the best advice in the world. Um, mm -hmm. You know, you have to kind of learn for yourself and you have to take advantage of the situation you're in. You know, I certainly wish I had explored some other opportunities for careers, uh, at least more than just, you know, a passing inquiry about grad school. I mean, I was not going to go to Russian grad, grad school. I mean, the fact that the woman told me I didn't appear serious enough, she was right. <laughs> she was right to say that. Um, but I didn't really know how to get into a career. I mean, the only thing I knew more about was my dad was a doctor and I knew I didn't want to do that because mm -hmm. you know, I saw the, his life and it was all encompassing. You know, mm -hmm. he was always on call. What I didn't realize at the time, and I now know, is that doctors have a lot more control of their schedules than lawyers these days. Wow, yeah. um, and I had no idea how that was all going to play out, but I never wanted to be a doctor. So mm -hmm. it was almost process of elimination. And I didn't see any other opportunities just jumping my way. And, it, you know, the time when we graduated, you know, we were getting into the Jimmy Carter recession years. I mean, we felt lucky to get into law school and to then to get jobs. I mean, it was a recession. It was mm -hmm. bad. It was right after, you know, the Vietnam War ended. Um, so there weren't a heck of a lot of opportunities. I, I probably would not have gone to a private law firm. I, I, I think I still would have gone to law school because I, I, I'm a verbal person. You know, I like words. Uh, I don't like confrontation, though, or litigation. So I never wanted to do that kind of thing. Um, I don't know. I mean, you know, I actually, there were a couple of courses I took at Yale that I was actually kind of interested in. Mm -hmm. And, you know, maybe if I'd been encouraged, you know, maybe I would have followed through with, with something like that something different. Mm -hmm. um, you know, econ was horrible, so boring. I had no way I was going to do that. Uh, I like psychology. Um, you know, there were some other uh, courses I took that kind of piqued my interest, but I just never went beyond the intro phase. I, I didn't know what I was doing and I was boy crazy. So mm -hmm. you know, I, I focused more on the, the men than, uh, you know, my career path. And it was, it was horrible senior year, writing that senior paper, realizing, now what? Mm -hmm. Now what? You know, and I'm all by myself in my room in Pearson College. Uh, and, uh, you know, that's when I started applying to law school. So I would have looked at some more options. Uh, you know, and, and nowadays, you know, that first job, is, it's just a first job. It's not your career. Mm -hmm. You know, you're just getting started. You're kind of opening yourself up to opportunities. And uh, the alumni network is a huge asset. 
you know, I could have uh, gone anywhere and probably found a, a Yale person willing to take a chance. But, you know, someone like uh, uh, Sonia Sotomayor, who's exact contemporary, and she was at Princeton when I was at Yale, mm -hmm. uh, you know, in a way, failure leads you to better opportunities sometimes. Being turned down for some jobs leads you to join that DA office or some, some other office you might not have even considered. You know, everyone's going to this law, law firm track in, in law school, but she did not because she didn't get job offers. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and Ruth Bader Ginsburg as well. You know, yeah. she, she started teaching at Rutgers and, you know, in some ways, not following the beaten path is the way you find a, you know, a more interesting opportunity. You know, I don't want work to be my life anyway. You know, I have a lot more interests in my life, you know, and I want to have time to travel, read, you know, see interesting things, meet interesting people. You know, I don't, I don't want to just work. And that's why I'm so happy to be retired now. What has been your favorite part of um, law? I, I liked the clients. You know, a lot of these were, you know, kind of middle market companies, you know, that had family owned and, you know, they were not public companies, some of them. And uh, so you got to know that side of the world, uh, you know, and they'd be selling out, you know, to somebody else. Uh, so you were seeing on a micro level what was happening in the economy. And when I was in the bank, I was working on financings. I had no no uh, concept of how big fraud is in this world. <laughs> Real eye-opening to fraud, scams. Oh my God, uh, because they're coming in every day to a bank. And, uh, you know, and you, as a lawyer, you really do have to recognize red flags and give good advice because the bank could lose a lot of money if they, you know, make a huge mistake. And, and some of the big banks have made colossal mistakes with with fraud but exciting very exciting mm -hmm. uh you know i mean big war stories lots of war stories the nonprofit was fun because you actually got to see things done in the community mm -hmm. um, you know and this this nonprofit was a parks conservancy and you know they were building projects you know in the parks it was it was fun a lot of fun and hard i actually you know when i started as a lawyer uh you know I had a very good opinion of the legal profession. There a lot of respect. Mm -hmm. The same I would for doctors. Mm -hmm. And the older I've gotten, you know, the more cynical I've, I've become. Mm -hmm. And both, both sides, both doctors and lawyers, I've mm -hmm. lost a lot of respect. And for journalists and for every type of professional. I mean, we all have our bad actors. But I do think, you know, over-lawyering is rampant. Uh, you know, and representing, you know, this small nonprofit who got sued a couple times uh, while I was there. You know, it's very distressing to be sued like that. You know, people can put you out of business with a lawsuit. And I've seen that happen to nonprofits. I have gotten laws passed uh, in my career. I got a law passed for a psychologist who was having problems getting licensed in the state. And there was just a little glitch in the state law. And I got it fixed for wow. her. And that was actually easy, you know, because uh, that was just one thing, you know, one person. I mean, there were other people in her situation, but, you know, she was bringing it up. 
what do you think the differences are between nonprofit culture and corporate um, culture in your experience? You know, they probably should be more different than they are, honestly. They're, you know, you see the, especially the bigger nonprofits looking more and more like, you know, profit corporations, mm -hmm. uh, you know, that salaries are high and, you know, they're getting heavily staffed and, you know, they're kind of losing their mission. The problem with nonprofits is sustainability. You know, just how do they keep going? How do they keep getting enough money in the door to keep operating? Corporations, on the other hand, you know, they are probably a lot of them with plenty of money in their coffers right now, some of them, um, you know, and they're just beholden to their shareholders, really. I don't know that employees are valued as much as they would be in the nonprofit world. You know, so the culture is such that as an employee, you may not have as much job satisfaction. And a lot of people, you know, flock to the nonprofit world because there's, there's, the work is more satisfying. In, in a lot of respects, you know, you're doing good, you know, you're, you're actually accomplishing something that people think is a good idea. And in a corporate setting, you know, if you're marketing some new product, you know, that may not be as satisfying. It might be, it might be, but, um, and you're more of a, a cog. I think in, in the nonprofit sector, you can get a little more visibility quicker if you're good. And, uh, um, you know, you can, it's actually a great launching pad. I think I've seen a lot of people move on and, and go on to interesting work. I always encourage people to, to join board, you know, joining a board of a small organization can be really eye opening to see what their challenges are. And, and the women who do get picked for those positions, you know, they tend to be on like 10 of them, you know, I mean, why can't they spread it around a little more? You know, I mean, why does it have to be the same people all the time? <laughs> You know, and they're very reluctant. Uh, you know, it's kind of like the movie industry. They're very reluctant to pick a new person. You know, you got to have a track record. But that's not as true in the nonprofit world. You know, you don't, you don't, you don't have to come with already everything done. No, that was that was really good insight. Thank you so much. Um, and just as the final question, why did you decide to contribute to Remembering Fifty? Well, I was just really impressed that, that uh, you were even attempting a project of this type. I just thought it was, you know, I, I get a lot of emails and I often kind of just, you know, put them aside or don't read them very carefully. But when I, I saw what you were trying to do, I thought, well, that sounds like a cool idea. You know, I like writing. I had a blog when I was in Dubai. Um, so that was actually fun. You know, it's kind of like keeping a diary, but you're actually trying to do it in a more, uh, you know, polished way. Mm. And uh, so I thought I would just give it a shot. And it was hard. <laughs> it was hard to write this piece. I actually struggled with it a really? lot. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, I did. And well, it's very personal. And, you know, it ended up being a little darker than actually is the way I really feel about my experience. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, but I, I thought it needed to be said um, because it was true, you know, and I hadn't really gotten that out before. So, you know, it was kind of cathartic for me. Well, thank you so much for doing it. I'm so happy that you decided to contribute um, in the end. And thank you so much for joining me today and for talking to me.
Remembering 50 is currently available for purchase on our website at yalewli.org slash remembering 50. Women of Yale is created by the Yale Women's Leadership Initiative. Special thanks to Michaela and Pam for a wonderful interview. Stay in touch with WLI by liking us on Facebook at the Women's Leadership Initiative at Yale and following us on Instagram at YaleWLI. That's it for this episode of Women of Yale. Thanks for listening. <laughs>